welcome to the Deadly Analysis podcast. I'm here with Shayra and Garrett, and we're going to be discussing It Chapter 2. Like all our roundtable discussions, this will be filled with spoilers, so if you haven't seen the film yet, check out our non-spoiler two-minute review released last Wednesday. But there's a good chance you have seen it because this film grossed about $91 million in its opening weekend. Following up on 2017's smash hit, It Chapter 2 picks up the Losers Club in their adult lives when Mike, the only loser to remain in the pastoral town of Derry, calls them back to fight Pennywise. The film is conveniently divided into three sections, catching up with the adult losers. Then each character must find a token from the past in order to participate in a Native American ceremony that will purportedly rid Derry of Pennywise and the final battle when the losers come together. Now we'll get to our review section of the podcast at the end, or maybe our opinions of the film will filter in through the course of our discussion. But for the most of this, we're going to be talking about the film's themes, what it's saying about facing one's fears in childhood slash adulthood. Not only that, not only does the film have something to say about all of these concepts, but it, chapter two, is part of a tradition of group films like The Big Chill or Diner or St. Elmo's Fire. And I've always found it fun to identify personally with one member of the group. So I'm going to start this podcast off by asking my intrepid and lovely co-hosts, uh, which loser are you? So I, I don't want to say it because it feels so obvious that I would relate to the girl in the group. But I mean, it's not just that she's the girl because she has a lot of other things going on. Um, I originally read the book and I very much related to her because she had an abusive father who was very physically... Uh, violent towards her and i grew up in a similar kind of household so she was kind of a hero to me um she was one of those people that i was like you know you can stand up to your you know for yourself you can try to have friends that you know are not toxic in your life that can help you through things um the fact that later on in adulthood she eventually repeats a cycle it was almost prophetic for me so i was really trying to avoid repeating a cycle because of that being part of her story arc. So I feel like her character was actually someone that helped me through life and like held my hand through a hardship. So um, I don't know. I also grew up in a very uh, weird house when it came to when you would come to your time and nobody told me about stuff and wouldn't let me go to sex ed classes. So the... Uh, blood exploding all over the bathroom scene very much it felt like what puberty was to me i very much related to that character so i don't want to like pick the girl because i'm the girl but i'm the girl like it's pretty obvious i i do relate very much to bev so so i want to delve into that particular scene, even though that wasn't part one, I want to, I think it connects thematically to several important things throughout. Um, but 
I'll start by answering your question directly, Jim. It's it's in some ways sort of a tricky one for me because I mean, starting with sort of their most superficial characters. You know, I I, I never had a, a characteristics. I never had a stutter. I never had a dead brother. I'm not a hypochondriac. Never was. I was never you know exceptionally overweight. I um, I wasn't the class clown. I wasn't Jewish, and I wasn't a girl, which basically leaves me being Mike Hanlon, the only black character in the story, uh, which is but a, you were never black either. Exactly, I wasn't. But uh, and and part of the reason why I, I stalled in answering your question, Jim, is because uh, I, I give a different answer for the for for the book and then for part one and then for part two. Uh, I was not really happy with the way part two handled Mike Hanlon's character. Um, I, I I didn't like some of the directions they took him. Maybe we can explore that in more detail later. But in broad strokes, I, I think I identify with uh, with Mike because he is the closest thing to a scholar of the group. You know, he does the research, he reads all the books, he wants to understand everything. And I you know view myself as a scholar and an academic, uh, so uh, uh, that's sort of the natural fit for me. So then would that mean that you relate to Ben and then later to Mike? Because originally the scholar was kind of Ben. He was the one collecting all of the history of the group. So Right, yeah, yeah. It, it does sort of shift off. And he also was, was sort of the closet romantic as well. Uh, so, yeah, when Ben is young, I, I, I you know, the, the, the longing for Beverly from afar is, uh, you know, certainly something I identified with. So, yeah, in part one more uh more ben i mean like i say i was never never particularly overweight somewhat overweight perhaps but never uh, uh that wasn't sort of the thing that, that hung over me as it were um and i was never bullied in the way that that, that ben was bullied so you know there's, there's no perfect fits here but sure there's no pe perfect fits in any of these uh these group films uh even the big chill which i think i definitely is uh identified more with the William Hurt character, even though I'm not a druggie and don't sell drugs and don't use drugs all that often, or at all, actually, except for the legal ones. Um, but, uh, yeah, I still... I, his general attitude about it, uh, definitely. A general attitude about um, that culture within that film was what I identified with. And I think in this film, I, I would... I would identify more with uh, Richie, although I've got shades of Eddie in me, a little hypochondriac, and uh, I certainly hear what you're saying, uh, Garrett, about Ben and and um, and Mike. But I think primarily it would be Richie of of all of them um, for myself. So let's get into that. Was kind of fun. Uh, let's get into the uh, the and and by the way, I also would have cast you both as Ben and Mike. Like that was uh, that was exactly what I was gonna go for. Like Garrett, I think that you stick in places uh, better than I ever will. Um, so like a, a place is something that's really important to you, and I think place is something that's really important to Mike. And so that's why not so much the scholar thing, but the the relationship with place is why I would have cast you as as Mike, even though, um, yes, as you, as we both correctly note, you were never, uh, African-American. Um, so let's start with some general thoughts about this movie. Um, and, uh, we'll sort of go to some of the themes that I teased in the introduction. Um, what did you, what did you overall think of the film? Garrett, I know you gave your non-spoiler thoughts in your non-spoiler review, but now you have the opportunity to talk about the end if you want to. Uh, what did you generally think? Well, um, uh... Bottom line review, uh, review for me is it's not as good as part one, uh, but still very good. Um, it was an incredible challenge that they took on 
and for the most part, I think, uh, 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 tackled it well. Um, I, but I will say, again, I'll start with the, the complaints about the ending. The idea of insulting Pennywise to death felt pretty lame to me. I mean, that was just not a very satisfying way of taking down this epic monster. Um, and as I said in my review, given that they had 33 years between the release of the novel and the, the, the release of this of chapter two, they couldn't have come up with something a little more satisfying. Now, obviously, anytime you're deviating from your source material, uh, there's questions there about uh, uh, exactly how appropriate that is, how far you want to deviate. Um, but as the film itself seems to acknowledge, Stephen King has a problem with endings. You know, I mean, he's, he's, he himself has admitted that he does not write with an ending in mind. He has a concept, he has characters, and he lets them play out. And oftentimes that journey is very, very rewarding and interesting. But, you, you know, I wouldn't say usually, but frequently enough, uh, the, the, the place that that ends up feels either uh, unsatisfactory or forced or, or, or just uninteresting in some way. And it as a novel is one of those places where it ends in a way that isn't terribly satisfying. And the movie stayed more or less true to that sentiment, which, you know, if you're a purist is a good thing. Uh, but, uh, you know, I was much more a purist when I was younger these days. Uh, I, I, I would have preferred them to have mixed it up and come up with something that was, uh, that deviated from the source material, but that in some way uh, had more sort of emotional resonance, had, uh, had more sort of dramatic uh, uh, confrontation because when it, when it came down to it, yeah, it was, they just insulted Pennywise and then he withered away to nothing. And that's, that's kind of lame. And it's, uh, let's, uh, I'll let you go in a second, Shara, but it's also really bad for a movie that is explicitly, in fact, in a franchise, two movies that are explicitly about the evils of bullying. And in fact, we get this incredibly uh, difficult to watch homophobic attack at the beginning of the movie that is all about bullying. And then, of course, a, a larger evil rises uh, aside from the bigotry that 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 lies underneath this town. And then, of course, that that homophobic attack never comes up again in the entire movie which structurally is a bit of a problem but, 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 but so this I'll, film... I'll... go wait what i i would say that, that homophobic attack uh, looms over the entire film but we'll come back to that okay but those characters don't come back again that's true yes that's what i'm saying is that the those characters never return uh while that homophobic attack may be I like that's what I'm trying to establish is this film is clearly about bullying explicitly and how bullying is um, demeaning and it it uh, affects people both in childhood and it's it's reverberations linger into adulthood. It is clearly an anti bullying movie, which it's not incredibly sophisticated to say bullying is bad but that seems to be what the movie's saying and then at the end the resolution of the conflict is let's bully pennywise uh so i guess bullying is good when it's an evil clown um it seems that it seems like a movie that's in cross purposes in that way so here's my little rant will go off on that um i think this film actually is more about um, so, despite the fact that he's this weird alien creature and a uh, turtle vomited and all this other stuff that isn't that's implied and it's hinted at, and you can see turtle like paraphernalia throughout the film, they don't exactly go into that, even though it's in the book. But what it is 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 it uh, creates hate. Why does it create 
hate because it feeds off of fear and hate creates fear. So um, you'll see this in the miniseries where they talk a lot about racial issues. This one goes more into homophobia, I believe, and other types of uh, issues of, of hatred. Uh, like, obviously, they still go into uh, abuse where you're telling your child they have diseases they don't have. Or abuse where you are raping your daughter, or uh, whatever other kind. Like the the pharmacy the pharmacy dude is hitting on a young girl. Um, it's all different kinds of weird, creepy hatred, but it's all ways that people are trying to overpower others and create fear in them, and that fear is what it feeds off of. And I I think the main crux of this story is when we hate on others we create fear in them and that is only something that becomes cyclical and it's hard to end a cycle that is that fucking evil um so when we talk about bullying pennywise to death you're bullying hate to death and it kind of reminds me of this argument that happens online where um, someone will be extraordinarily racist or extraordinarily homophobic and say some really hateful, horrible things that could cause people to want to commit suicide or cause others to commit hate crimes. And uh, and then everyone's like, don't do that, you fucking asshole. You're a piece of shit. Don't talk that way. And they're like, oh, my gosh, you're so intolerant of me. You guys speak of tolerance, but you're intolerant of my intolerance. And it's like, that's not how intolerance works at all. Now, I guess if you want to feel bad for Pennywise or whatever iteration he comes as, whether he's the lady in the painting or Egg Boy or whatever, um, like I understand relating to that. That means it's a well-written character, right? That's a so when you relate to a bad person, it's a well-written character. But I think at the end of the day, when you're intolerant of intolerance, something that has been brainwashing your parents to not see blood in the bathroom uh, through television programming and brainwashing, which, hello, Fox News, <laughs> you got called out in this film. Um, uh, but, like, the parents are watching this weird, creepy clown show that's that's brainwashing them and, and making them more hateful towards their children and more abusive towards their children and unable to see the evil that's hurting their own children through the horrible things they do to their kids. Um, I, I'm fine with being intolerant towards a monster that would do that personally, but I understand what you're saying. It doesn't look great when they're squeezing the heart of a person <laughs> that's crying out. It seems pretty fucking horrific, but I almost feel like that's something necessary for us to talk about today because like not, maybe not murdering people, but murdering this hatred that is permeating in others is more so what it is. And we have to get to the heart of the problem of that. What is the heart of the, the hatred that's being permeated throughout our society? So I guess to, I saw this more metaphorical, personally. So and much to be for the clear, tolerant I'm... losers club. <laughs> Wait, what was that, Jared? So much for the tolerant losers club. You know, these, so much for the tolerant left thing. You know? uh, yeah, I, 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 to be clear, I wasn't feeling bad for Pennywise, but rather I was just... Uh, 
I was saying that the film ru- seems to run cross purposes because it it seems to condemn bullying, but also uh, uses bullying as a weapon in its final final moment, which I found to be thematically cross purposes. But go ahead, Shira. Would tell me about your overall thoughts of the movie. Okay, so um, for me personally, this film, I love the book. And I love that they brought elements of the book to it that were super important. So um, my fangirl part of this is there is a lot of homosexual themes that are in the book that were never put in the miniseries and not many people talk about. Um, but the the hate crime that happens at the beginning of this film was in the book, and it is based off of an actual hate crime that happened to an actual person. This is not something that was ham-fisted in. It was written in 2015 uh, when they were writing all the scripts out. They were purposely putting this in there. Um, but also, Richie is very much bisexual in the book, uh, probably more so towards men. Uh, but he definitely sleeps with women at other parts. He flirts with everyone in the group. In, in the book, he flirts with everybody. Um, but specifically, what was exciting was Reddy being put in, which is Richie and Eddie, the R plus the E. Uh, and a lot of teen girls are going crazy, and there's probably going to be a bunch of fan fiction coming out about it. But one of the things that people were upset about initially from the miniseries is they took out the homosexual undertones of the story and this film kept them which is super great i think it's super wonderful they still didn't have every line like richie uh would call eddie cutie all the time and pinch his cheeks he called him eds and ed would be like you know i hate it when you say that and it's like super like corny kid flirtations you know and um there's a scene where uh, Richie is sucking on a rocket popsicle and Eddie wants to have some of his rocket popsicle. And even though he's a germaphobe, is like wanting some of Richie's rocket popsicle. It seems very like there's these homoerotic undertones that Stephen King puts in there, but there's some that are almost blatantly obvious. So for me... Uh, this film was much more honest to the source material, and that's not necessarily always great, but I feel like this is pr- progress. You know, t- made for TV miniseries, they probably wouldn't have been okay with a hate crime towards a homosexual couple, and then later having uh, it obvious that Richie has always loved Eddie. That would not have played well in 1990 on a TV series, but I mean, today it's like, I bet there's people that thought that was ham-fisted in. You know, and and thought that this was probably part of the SJW agenda. And so I find it very amusing that, you know, we've come this far where people think that a a book that was written in the 80s is probably some kind of uh, propaganda from 2019. So um, I don't know. I just thought it was a really, really great part of the storyline because Richie is this person who was always telling jokes to hide who he is. And that's part of what Pennywise is trying to bring out of him. And he is not honest with himself. That's why in the first film, Richie felt kind of like a hollow, blank, boring kind of a character. He didn't have as much interesting things going on except for one-liners and your mom jokes. And it's because he was hiding his sexuality the whole fucking time. And once, you know, him and Eddie were able to 
be more honest with each other in those last little moments, you know, he could really express how he felt about Eddie all along instead of picking on him. <laughs> Although they still picked on each other. And I, I love the, I don't know if it's improvised or if it was the people that wrote it, but when he was just like, I fucked your mom, like that was romance to me. That's the kind of banter that I have with my husband. So I thought that was romantic in my own weird way. Um, but I'm done fangirling. That was that meant a lot to me, and it meant a lot to some of us out there that are like, where is the Stephen King homosexual representation that isn't completely disgusting and like a psychopath is acting it out or or a bad guy is like raping someone? It's just love from middle school days that uh, is slightly expressed in your older age. If, if we're going to talk about the, the sexuality, then I feel we should at least uh, a nod to one of the most infamous scenes in the book, which was not in the miniseries from 1990 and not in either of these films either. And that is the preteen orgy that takes place in the underground. <laughs> yeah, you see Jim's face because Jim hasn't read the book. There is a scene in which the group of seven 12-year-olds all have sex together. And the exact reason why isn't entirely clear to me, even all these years later. Um, one of those things where I uh, I guess I'm glad that they didn't put it in, because I don't know there's any way you could include a scene like that in a film. Um, in fact, You I'm guess little... you're glad they didn't put it in? <laughs> no, no, no! You're very glad they didn't put it in. <laughs> what the yeah, fuck? It's, it's nice mean, to have source material put forth, but it's also there's certain elements where you're like, eh, it's not necessary. Yeah, <laughs> there's no, I realized no, by no. 1986... The preteen gangbang? No, I'm glad that's not in there. Yeah, by 1986, of course, Stephen King was one of the biggest authors in the world, and editors probably had a very serious time telling him no, especially after he had released The Stand, which had been cut down by like 400 pages, and people you know, demanded there to be the extended edition was released. So, so telling King to cut things at that stage may have been a hard thing to sell. But I gotta say, had I been one of his editors, I would have sat down with him and like, we really got to talk about this scene. I don't know that it belongs in, in any book, much less much less this they one. They hint so. at it though. They hint at it in uh, when they're on the cliff and all the boys are in their tidy whities and she's in her underwear. They're all looking at her and she looks over and they're like, oh. It's pretty obvious that there's interconnections with right. uh, all the characters to all the characters. Yeah, exactly. It's just, we, sh we could ship any of them. We could ship any of them. I think there's a massive difference between checking a girl out because she's in her underwear on a cliff and then having a seven way. Like, <laughs> I think those are two vastly different things. Yeah. I don't know. When your middle school attraction almost you know, always ends up with action. <laughs> so, so, uh, you had a different can... middle school hood than I did. <laughs> maybe, maybe we can sort of use that as a segue. Because uh, as I said again in my two-minute review, one of the things which I absolutely loved about part one uh, and about the novel is I think that it does a fantastic job of capturing that incredibly sensitive and difficult time in the life of a human being, you know, and 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 the American parlance, at least, it's it's the middle school, you know, middle school, early high school days 
uh, when that is. You know, when you're 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 starting to mature, you're hitting sort of you know sexual maturity, but you're also sort of starting to pioneer your own identity. You're trying to find you know your own friends. You're 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 worrying about bullies. You're worrying about you know what you're going to do with your life and going forward, and all that uncertainty and anxiety and stress. And the film. Uh, part one and the book, I think, captures that absolutely brilliantly. And one of the things that kind of disappointed me about part two was that it did not capture the reminiscence of that as well. Um, it, it, and it wasn't necessary that anything in particular was done poorly. The, the necessary elements were there. They go back to, to to the city. They go. They look. They see the old house. You know. They they go back to their old hangouts and stuff like that. They have the flashbacks and so forth. Um, but in spite of the fact that I felt, you know, it was generally acted well, I never really felt the 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 pathos, the 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 power of nostalgia just hitting you and almost paralyzing you. And part of that might be, of course, because it's competing with the fear that they're that they're you know that they're facing as well, right? You know, they're not just going back to relive the old glory days or to to to, to try to remember uh, the the past for the sake of remembering the past. They're going back to to face and fight evil. Um, but I felt the book managed to 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 encompass both of those things. It it, it had you know, sort of like a, a Proustian element, you know, a remembrance of things past in it. And I feel that it captured that feeling of nostalgia brilliantly. And while that's a very difficult thing to get out of a film, I was really hoping to see it in part two, and I didn't see it in part two. So I mean, it's hard to do without the children there as much, you know. That's that, and and that's why I like the pacing of the book. I like the pacing of the miniseries. I like the cutting back and forth. I think that's what you go from nostalgia. Holy shit, we're old. Nostalgia. Holy shit, we're old. Nostalgia. Oh my fucking god, we're all gonna die. <laughs> it's like that's. That's actually real life. It's so true to real life. Uh, when when I first saw the first one, I was like, what the fuck is this shit? Like, it's all just them young. This is fucking bullshit. I was almost pissed. Oh, like, you didn't know that going in? I mean, I kind of did, but I was like, maybe they'll hint at things or they'll, like, you know, like, try to interlace it, which they did in the second one. They try to put some of the kids in the in the second one. I thought they might try to put some adults in the first one. Right. There's no adults at all. Not it's it's all kids and i was like what they hadn't cast anyone right you know they, they no. didn't know it was going to be a hit so they didn't plan far enough ahead which you know made it not, not their fault but it's it's frustrating because um one of the best parts about that is the roller coaster ride of feeling what it's like to so quickly grow up because that's what it is growing up right. is very quick and that's what makes it so powerful. You have, you're growing up very quickly, but on top of that, you're surrounded by hateful bigots everywhere. And it's, it's so fucking powerful because it's real, although it's supernatural. It helps you cope with the reality of the world. Now, th this is something that the 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 it part two didn't mention, but it was in the miniseries and it was in the book about how you know none of them had kids. You know, all of them were childless, you know, and it's only at the end after Pennywise is dead that, that they that one of them finally has has a child. And so that's sort of a curse that's broken. And, you know, I, I, I always find it interesting sort of comparing notes between my friends who have kids and my friends who don't have kids. 
about, you know, things like nostalgia, right? Because, you know, when you have a kid, you can sort of by proxy relive some of those experiences. You know, you can see middle school through their eyes and sort of go back in some ways. You know, and I, I'm not having children myself. I don't have that, you know, that, that perspective or that privilege, call it what you will. Um, so I'm sort of left to my own devices, to my own memory, as it were, to try and recapture and reclaim those things. And, you know, I, I, it might have been nice if the film had hung a lantern on that. Again, I wouldn't say it was necessary, uh, but it is sort of conspicuous in some ways for a group of people who are, you know, in their late 30s uh, to, to not have kids. That is, statistically speaking, for six people to not a single one of them have kids is a little odd. Well, let's, I, yeah, I mean, I, it may be that the fact that I disagree with literally every word that both of you just said is why I, the movie didn't work for me, and yet it worked well for, for both of you. I mean, for me, uh, childhood was interminable. It was just this long thing that I really had to get through in order to reach the real business, which was adulthood. And adulthood is going by way too fucking quickly. Um, so I, the fact that I don't have any of this, this nostalgia for childhood, I'm glad it's over. I don't want to relive it. I don't want to see anything associated with it. And I don't particularly care about uh, the, you know, childhood at, um, as a whole might be uh, the entire reason why none of this really works for me. Go ahead, well, Garrett. Uh, you no, have... uh, that, that seems like it should absolutely work for you then, because that's exactly the position that five of the six main characters are in in this film. None of them want to go back home. All of them want to stay the fuck away because childhood was hell for them. And so in that respect, you know, I mean, the only thing that's missing in your story is you don't have a compelling reason why you have to go back to your childhood. Right, and uh, hopefully there won't be a killer clown in uh, in the greater Avon, Ohio area for me to return to that place. Um, but if there is, you can bet that I'll be much like Richie and vomit my way through the plane ride all the way back there. Um, but yeah, I mean, let's let's sort of reduce, get rid of this. Uh, you know, I I don't want this to be a two hour podcast about Jim and his his. Uh, his feelings toward childhood. I mean, it seems but it like could the first be. film. No, it's, well, it, it doesn't need to be. But I, I mean, nobody this is, needs this, to watch that. <laughs> I, what I, I think this is what's important about the film, though. Um, reflecting back on our past doesn't mean we liked it, and and that isn't anything any of these kids did. In fact, their past was much more nightmaric than anything you could ever fucking think of. Not only did Bev have this issue of going through puberty and not having a dad who understands and she was getting raped by him and she was like not understanding parts about herself and who she was and she had to figure all that out by having an orgy with a bunch of little boys apparently according to <laughs> the book but on top of that she also had a clown that was chasing her she got possessed and loaded up in the sewer system and then got to see how all of them were going to die. She got to see all of her friends when they were going to be old. She had to lie to her friend Stan, who was like, oh, what do I look like? And she's like, oh, you're taller. When she's really imagining him in a tub with his wrist slit, you know, that's fucked. Their childhoods were super fucked, and that's why they were forgetting all of it. That's it, it, the, the idea that, you know, the further away you get the more it gets erased. That's actually what happens the older we get. The further away from our past 
the more we forget. We might even start making our past stories kind of a legend, you know, and rewrite somehow how it was told. Paul Thomas Anderson has a fantastic line from his film Magnolia. We may be done with the past, but the past isn't done with us. And I feel that that is a very appropriate quote for this film. You know, that's that's something that Mike could have said to, to to all five of his friends when he's on the phone with them. You know, you may want to leave this behind. You you clearly do. You clearly have. You clearly forgotten about it for the most part. But the past isn't done with you. We made a promise. We made a pact. You have to come back. So the, I I mean, it seems as though the first film is implying that childhood wasn't as innocent as is often portrayed. We've got these images of kids on bikes, but behind that, there's this backdrop of abuse and bullying. But chapter two, what is it saying about adulthood? Is it saying exactly what you're saying, Garrett? Um, and what does it say about looking uh, back on childhood? Is it saying that our childhoods are never done with us and that we as adults are always affected by it? Or what? tell me more about this as it relates to this movie because I, I'm struggling with whether or not it has something coherent to say. Uh, can I can I throw in here oh. real quick and then I'll let you... Because I want to do something really quick and then I know Garrett probably has a lot more to put off of it. You have to deal with the trauma of your childhood if you want to get rid of your scars. That is the whole story of the second half. You have to deal with your trauma so that the scar on your hand will disappear. <laughs> That's You need to go to therapy and deal with your shit. That's what this movie's saying. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's a fantastic way of, of summarizing it, Shara. Um, I, I don't think I can do it as briefly or as eloquently, but I'll maybe go into a little bit more detail than that. Um, yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I take this to be Tom, Paul Thomas Anderson's point in, in, in Magnolia when he has this quote, uh, and I, I think it's the same thing here. It's in King's book. Um, it, it's that, you know, adults often tell themselves a story about who they are, um, and it's often a story about the person as they exist today. Um, and we tend to think of our of the past selves that we were as not being the the real us. Um, you know, that's a different person back then that committed those crimes or did those horrible things or was that silly and naive or whatever the case may be. Um, and we want to disassociate ourselves with that version of that past version of ourselves and, and treat that like it's a different person. Um, and I think that this film um, uh, is trying to sort of say that that's not the case. That who we are today is a is a result of who we were back then, and and there's there, there is a thread that connects who we were to who we are. And if we want to know who we are, if we want to understand ourselves, uh, we have to look back to the past to, uh, to to come to terms with that. Now there's there's an existentialist criticism of that message, and maybe and I know that that we want to bring in existentialism maybe a little on, so maybe we can turn to that later. Um, but the, the, the broad topic of how it is that, uh, that we, uh, living beings here in the present, um, uh, uh, relate to the, the people who we once were in the past is, I think, something that's philosophically, narratively challenging. And I think that that's, you know, the, 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 the story of homecoming is always a good way to explore that, uh, going back to the, from, to the place from whence you came, uh, back to your old cradle, uh, is a powerful way and, and, and general toolbox for exploring those themes. 
And it works well in in films like Wild Strawberries and uh, yeah, that, Wild Strawberries and Wild Strawberries and Wild Strawberries. <laughs> like it works well in 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 uh, in that film, especially. Um, what? Where do you specifically? If I can get you to drill down to specific scenes in a chapter two, and I know you've only you know the film just came out, so we ha- haven't had the time to study it in the way we do most of our films, but what specific scenes do you see this in? Because I think that everything that you're saying is really interesting, and I hate to use this, it's it's my asshole line. I'd like to see a movie about that. Um, have you have you ever gone back to, to an old house that you've lived in? Um, because for me, I mean, again, I, my parents actually still live in my childhood house, uh, uh, but you know, I lived in houses after that, and Anytime I go back to one of those places, you know, I'm I'm knocked over with this sort of a nostalgic wave, and I re- I remember things being there that I would not have remembered unless I was standing there. Oh my God, that one time, yes. Oh, I forgot about that. And I think that you see that in this in this film. They go back to several locations to the old school. They go back. Bev goes back to her old house, of course. And that's probably the most protracted scene in which that takes place. Um, uh, and so, uh, yeah, th- th- the literal re- revisiting of the geography is is one uh, clear way- technique that they use to explore this theme. And that does work. Uh, so I recently visited my old hometown, and my best friend's parents' house is the exact same. Uh, I went to visit my grandmother. Her house is the exact same. And I went back, and I was like, what the f- it 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 was almost frightening uh there were paintings on the wall of her parents house that used to scare the shit out of me as a kid <laughs> my best friend's house <laughs> and and i saw him again and i got i got scared i i swear to god there was this one time when i was hanging out with my girlfriends at her house we were having a sleepover and um it scared the shit out of me so bad and i was freaking out and i was like i don't the painting's looking at me and I started freaking out and our friend Tawny, she started like freaking out and her stomach started vibrating and we were like, oh my God, there's ghosts. We're all going to die. And like, you know how kids are. You just start to build off of each other's fears until it's bubbling over. And then I go back to my friend's house and there's that painting again. And I completely recalled, I had forgotten. I completely recalled this moment when I thought there were ghosts and we were about to get killed by this painting. And, um, I, I think that this film really well captures those weird moments in your childhood where you just freak yourself out over a shadow that's on the wall or a coat that's hanging <laughs> on a coat hook and you think it's a bad guy. You know, whatever you might scare yourself about. Maybe it wouldn't work when you're an adult, but when you grow up and see that thing that originally scared you, sometimes it it brings back those feelings and you're like, oh, shit. So... And also, my grandma's house always scared the shit out of me. It was really creaky, and there was all these weird noises you couldn't explain. And it, So I swear, I went to my hometown and scared the shit out of myself, essentially, because I ran into things that scared me as a kid. And I, maybe that's why when I watched this you know, second chapter, I felt it, because I was like, oh, I remember being afraid of paintings and afraid of, like, different things that were in my hometown and i don't know maybe you've never experienced that but i feel like it captured how nostalgia can frighten you 
Yeah, no, not for me. I mean, I've gone back to an old house and all of that, but uh, it's just like, oh, that's the house that we made X thousand dollars on. You know, it's not exactly a, uh, it's not exactly a nostalgic thing. Um, But yeah, but what you're drawing us to, go ahead, Garrett, you seem like you want to say something. Yeah, I was going to say, so another example, maybe this one will land for you, is, is, is is the reconnecting with old friends that you haven't seen for a long time. You know, uh, the, I mean, in, in, in the social media age, it's a little harder because you, you you have something oftentimes to stay connected to people. You know, you see what they look like, for example. Um, but, you know, I'm old enough to remember the days before Facebook when you see someone who you haven't seen in 10 years. And it's like, oh, my God, you're the same, but you're different. And that means I'm the same, but I'm different. And I remember the times that we had together, but I don't know if they mean anything anymore because the person's who I was then doesn't fully exist anymore. So while I have the memory of it meaning something, I don't know that it still meant something. Uh, and I think that plays out in several scenes, uh, you know, in the in, in the restaurant scene, in the Chinese restaurant, um, in the scene in the, the the stairwell where where Bev and Ben are talking about that love poem, and you know, it's not clear uh, whether or not uh, you know the, the 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 emotions are still there, or whether or not they're just this hangover from childhood, and, and whether or not they actually whether or not Ben actually still cares for Bev or, or is still in love with her even at that point. So uh, yeah, I mean, again, I, I wouldn't, I would, I certainly would not call it wild strawberries in terms of its execution. Like I say, I think that the film doesn't do it as well as I wanted it to do this. But I, I do think the elements are there. I think they're they're making an effort to it and they're they're at least cognizant of uh, of the power of that experience even if they're not fully capturing it in the film. Those re uh those reunions with friends reminded me more of wild strawberries than then it reminded it chapter two reminded me of those those experiences. But uh, Shaver, you were kind of drawing us to this idea of facing one's fears. And I think that this is the central theme of both of these movies, it chapter one um, and it chapter two. And that I mean, we see this demonstrated in the fact that the losers, each of the losers goes through a a horror sequence related to some sort of personal demon, Ben and her, or Bev rather, and her abusive father, Bill, uh, versus his guilt over Georgie's death. Eddie gets sprayed with his vomit, uh, that, that, um, the attacker's vomit, um, which of course triggers his neuroses and his hypochondria. I mean, the film seems to be saying that facing fear makes us stronger but is this true and and then uh let's segue to what you were kind of teasing earlier garrett what would the existentialists say about this idea yeah i i think that the idea of facing the fear uh if anything if there's a moral to it it's that you can't face your fear alone um uh, it's that alone you are weak together you are strong it's it is about the social bonds of friendship and what we what we do for each other and how we can help support each other through the, the the hard times. So I actually don't think the film is trying to say that facing our fear makes us stronger. Uh, I think actually each time where the person tries to face their fear on their own, they almost always come up uh, losing almost dead uh, or just failing in some way. It's only when they face their fears together that they actually uh, accomplish anything. Uh, so it, it's it's not, again, I, I, I wouldn't say that it's, uh, I don't think there's a, the message of facing your fear makes you stronger. Uh, if anything, I, I think it's 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 having your friends make makes you stronger. It makes you capable of facing your trauma, uh, uh, facing your past, overcoming your demons, et cetera, and so forth. 
And so what would the existentialists say about this? Because my suggest well, go ahead, Garrett. You're the uh, you're our resident existentialist PhD. So Oh, so I say, yeah, no, my expertise is not an existentialism. Um, well, I think it's interesting because whichever of those two takes you take, mine or yours, the existentialists are going to have problems with that. Um, the existentialists generally tend towards more individualism. Uh, uh, they, they tend to be skeptical of being with others. Uh, uh, or, 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 you know, they, they, Sartre has this whole line about the, the relationship between being with others and being for others, right? Uh, being with others, you're, you're around other people, but you, you get pulled into these codependent relationships relationships where you see yourself through their eyes and that's being for others. You are who you are because of how they see you. And uh, I think that that uh, it part two is is saying that that can be a good thing, that that, that together we can be stronger, uh, that, that we can accomplish things that we cannot accomplish as individuals. Uh, and when we identify as friends, uh, uh, we, uh, we are uh, capable of literally uh, destroying demons. Uh, but when we, we, we choose to go off on our own, as several of the characters do at several points in the film, to try to tackle their demons or literally Pennywise uh, sometimes on their own, uh, uh, they're they unable to succeed at that. So uh, the existentialists would, would sort of seem to look at this movie and say that we as individuals can't do anything. Uh, that that we are, that we as individuals are weak and incapable of overcoming our fears and and overcoming our trauma and it's only uh, when other people tell us who we are that we actually can be brave and can be strong uh, and I keep saying the existential so let me be more specific Sartre in particular would find that, that the moral of that story to be rather distasteful um, uh, he does not want uh, to, us to view ourselves as being dependent on other people to be who we are. He recognizes and, sometimes we are, but that's but he doesn't like the fact that, we, that that's how we are. And that's what, yeah, I mean, Sartre would totally hate this movie, which, uh, you know, might might also explain why the movie didn't work for me. Uh, because I think that uh, those moments when the, the folks were on their own, I don't actually see them. I see them facing their fears, but I don't see them facing Pennywise. They're not actually facing the... Um, the 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 incarnate version of their fears. They're facing what the sort of obstacle that Pennywise has thrown against them. And in many cases, the fear. In fact, in all cases, you're right. The fear wins. And uh, Richie and and Eddie sort of return to the house, going, "Yeah, I'm done. This is out. I'm out." Uh, and and of course, one of the things we probably should have talked about when we were talking about the nostalgia factor was just Bill riding this bike around, which sort of redeployed this idea of kids on bikes in the 80s, which apparently was a thing um, that, uh, that every kid did rode a bike around the, the town. And that and even when he has those his moments with Georgie, those are. Those are like a reversal of the same moments that occurred in the first film. So I'm about to transition to another subject, Garrett. But you seem like you're you want to comment on this whole. So just, just let me. A yeah, just a correction. Bill specifically tries to tackle Pennywise all by himself twice. Once in the fun house, and then once in the house house. He ch he charges in there all on his own, and the the, the friends have to catch up. Uh, That's so. true. You're right. My 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 apologies. Yeah yeah yeah. yeah. Um, and of course the, the scene in the, in the, uh, uh, this is as Ryan George pointed out in his pitch meeting of it chapter two, there is, uh, 
There's Bill going chasing after a child into the funhouse. The child ends up murdered, and Bill leaves the funhouse alone. So I guess Bill is the prime suspect, right? Um, like, it simply has to be the case. But yeah, thank you for the I correction. actually thought something very similar. I was like, how are people not going to think he was part of this since he's right there? Um Especially if he's probably winded and like, <laughs> yeah, I'm, he would not I'm have any blood splatters. So I think he would be, I think he'd be exonerated head. because he wouldn't have had any blood splatters on him. That, so. That's that clearly. Let's see what <laughs> that does in a court of law. Um, it chapter three, <laughs> the trial of Bill. Um, <laughs> so yeah, let's go ahead. No, uh, um, I, before. Moving on, I think this probably is a good place to come back to something you mentioned earlier, which is the 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 homophobic attack at the beginning. Uh, I said I think that that's that's hanging over the film the entire time, and you are correct that neither of those characters ever come back. One of them is dead, so fairness for that. Um, but uh, and I think that this is this is much more inherent of a theme of the film than facing your fears, um, and this is something you see in a lot of Stephen King's works, and that is that. Uh, beneath the veneer of small town America lies a lot of dark shit. And it is genuinely scary, whether that be racism or homophobia or incest or child abuse. Um, uh, or, you know, you, you, when you pass through these towns, when you visit them, you see this very happy all-American veneer. Uh, but the underbelly, in the, in the narrows, as it were, uh, uh, there, there lies monsters. And you know, obviously, the film is taking the 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 device of uh, making the monster be uh, a demon, you know, a clown, a spider, etc. Um, but you know, I think that's that's by way of misdirection of saying you know, that that what's really the, the the genuine horrors beneath all that is our fellow Americans, our fellow human beings. It is the 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 kids. Remember, it's it's it is one kid explicitly, and maybe two two older teens in the beginning who engage in the gay bashing. Uh, uh, you you see a side of childhood there that is almost this sort of twisted mirror image of the of the children that you see in uh, um, uh, the first film. Uh, so while that 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 gay bashing isn't something that you see, you know, in the literal sense, uh, I think that sets the thematic tone for everything else in the film, and that is beneath the surface lies terror. Yeah, I think that's a theme in the first one as well. This is uh, beneath the the pretty American veneer is a a demon, and I mean that even reflects in the characterization of Pennywise. Beneath this pretty happy clown is literally a demon. One of my favorite moments in the film um, had to do with the girl with the scar on her face. So she was at the beginning. When uh, Adrian gives her the prize he won at the fair, because he could Seems tell like she really wanted it. Mark, but it... I, yeah, she has some kind of mark on her face. Uh, by the way, I have a scar on my face, and I was called Scarface as a kid, and I was ridiculed for a long time about having a scar on my face. You probably don't notice it; it's fine. Um, but but I have a very pronounced scar on my face when a dog attacked me when I was like four or five years old. So it's always been there, very pronounced. And um, I got a lot of ridicule for it. And there's this little girl who has a mark on her face. And um, the thing that really struck me with this girl, she gets the prize from Adrian and is she gets hope in humanity. 
She's like, there is good in the world. And I'm happy. And I have this token to show that there's good in the world. By the way, that good in the world was slaughtered and thrown off of a bridge by some hateful homophobic assholes. But later, she puts down her token when she's at a football game and goes underneath the bleachers. And there is Pennywise. She's chasing after a cute little, you know, firefly. And uh, eventually, there's Pennywise. He captures the firefly, opens it up, and is like, hello. And she immediately is like, nope, nope. Toxic person, red flag, red flag, red flag. But then he appeals to her good heart and her empathy and her love for humanity and the goodness she saw from somebody else and all these other things that she she's like you know what i might be doing the very thing that i have been dealing with myself he's like my face that's why nobody likes me it's my face and she's like oh my god me too oh i have a mark on my face too oh and then she gets empathy 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 and that's how he gets her. He's like, I can fix the thing that everybody's making fun of you about. Come over here. And this is what uh, actually happens in real life. You will run into people who are very toxic, who will use your empathy and your love and your affection and your willingness to see past red flags, and they will eat you alive. This happens in real life. And it was such an amazing moment because one of the things I had a problem with with the first it was I was like, this is just a monster. He's a piece of shit. Like, who's going to fall for this? You, you see that guy, you run. End of story. This really solidified things for me because it showed that this demon, when he, when he is acting as Pennywise, can appeal to that child and lure them in, which was the main reason why this alien monster entity liked being Pennywise in the first place. He liked fucking with people. He was a total troll. He get, he got off on making them feel like they were safe and then attacking. Um, so it, it felt more real to what the character is, but also it's such a real-life metaphor. It is something that we all fall for. As so. they say in a as they say in a better Stephen King movie, he kills them with their love. Um, that's from Green Mile. Uh, but yeah, I think that yeah, there's you're right about the first characterization of Pennywise, but a lot of that has to do with like Bill Skarsgård had to make it different from the uh, the Tim Curry portrayal because even though that movie is off derided, there's one thing that's never derided, and that is the Tim Curry Curry performance in that movie. Yeah, I just want to underscore and echo this because w before the first film came out, one of my biggest concerns about it because I'd seen you know the the promos of Bill Skarsgård as Pennywise. And I, I had some real problems because I saw that and I thought, there's no way in hell Georgie would ever get into a sewer with that. You know, he, he would just run away. And as you're talking about, Sherry, I think that the filmmakers, in particular Bill Skarsgård, did, just did a fen phenomenal job of you know, again, transforming that that, that presentation. Because when you again, when you see Tim Curry as, as Pennywise in the very first in the opening sequence of, of the of the miniseries, he doesn't look scary, right? He looks just like a clown. But when you see Pennywise in this one, he does look scary. But because of the performance, not the aesthetic, but the performance, you actually do believe that he could seduce a child down in there. And that is, I think, a, a, fan, a phenomenal accomplishment of, of 
of chapter one, but it also extends into chapter two, both with this particular scene you're talking about, Shara, but also sort of more more writ large. I, I think one of the uh, incredible things about both films is Bill Skarsgård's performance as Pennywise. He had big shoes to fill, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, and and he, he definitely made the role his own, and that is a, a very impressive accomplishment. Well, yeah, the thing that's interesting about it is, so what is the thing that brings them all together? This big group of friends, what do they call themselves? The Loser Club. They're the losers. They're the Losers Club. And then, so, Bill Skarsgård takes that element, and then the writers take that element, and they're like, I know I don't look very fun, but I'm a person too. You don't want to hurt me. And it's like, Oh my God, that's toxic as fuck. Whole and and it 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 blew my mind. So that when you get to the end, when they are essentially bullying him to death, um, it it almost makes perfect fucking sense because he tries to appeal to their good hearts. He tries to make them empathize with him when he's a monster, and it's not working anymore. He can sit there and look pathetic and, oh, no. And they're like, nah, -uh. I've, I've fallen for this shit way too many times, motherfucker. It's not going to happen again. You are not going to put one over on me and make me feel sorry for you because you are toxic and you are hurting everyone. Yeah. So... It's a common tactic of abusers, right? To, to do exactly that is to turn it around and make their victims feel sorry for them. Uh, as if, you know, they deserved it or they earned it or, or something like that. Uh, um, or, you know, he he only hits me when he uh, uh, when I deserve it or something along those lines. Right. And and that's that that psychology is very real. So. I think that's an exact line from California, the uh, David Duchovny, Brad Pitt and uh, Juliette Lewis movie. Damn you, Jim. That is the movie I was quoting. I should have known <laughs> you would have got that movie quote. <laughs> yep. This is. And for for those of you who don't know, Garrett and I often play a movie quote game. Um, and that is he just says a movie quote and I name the movie. Uh, and, you know, I, I do it back at him as well. So, yes, that is exactly from California. The, the exact line is he hits you only when i deserve it and uh yeah it's a uh, it's a moment from from california um yeah let's uh i i do want to go back to this fear facing because i've got one sort of other question about this and it's the the mirrors between uh it chapter one and it chapter two and that is that the concept the conflict resolution setup that occurs in both movies um is that you know Bev has to face her abusive father. Bill has to face his guilt over Eddie, or guilt over Georgie, rather. Eddie has to face his neuroses. These same things happen over and over again. One of the interesting things, sort of, I, as I have sort of alluded to multiple times and, and often said outrightly, this movie didn't work for me, but one of the films that did work for me, one of the themes that did work for me, is it seemed to be saying that facing your fears is an ongoing process because the because we get these mirrors uh these rhymes shall we say in the first film and the second film that suggested to me that facing one's fears is an ongoing process and it's never actually com compete uh complete and I wonder about I did you guys get the same theme from this movie and and if so what was its effect on you I mean it's it's important to understand that when we have issues we're dealing with 
there's no like happy ending resolution where we're all dancing in white under a rainbow with unicorns like you know farting out ice cream cones in front of us like it's that there's no happy ending and um everybody looks for happy endings and i don't really comprehend that aspect of life life is constant struggle life is constant journey life is constant dealing with the stuff that probably will always fuck with you and you can try to not be afraid of things and that's fine like if you get over a fear of spiders congrats that's awesome Uh, you probably will have a rejuvenated fear of spiders if your best friend's head uh, comes out of tumbling out of a refrigerator and has legs crawl out of it and then tries to like you know slime vomit in your mouth uh so it, like you can try to get over your fears but there's always going to be a rejuvenation of these fears that pop back up and and are recreated in in other ways and other manifestations it's just, never fully gone but just to sort of contradict that a little bit and to to push back on that, this film does try and wring a happy ending out of it. It does. I, I wonder whether or not the film is negating its own message because it does try and wring a happy ending. There's even a guy who says, like, I committed suicide and wasn't that a good thing? Like, yeah, what? Yeah. go ahead. Yeah, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. That's exactly so. what I wanted to bring up. Uh, I am really uncomfortable with the way this film dealt with Stanley's suicide. Um in the book and in the miniseries, it is abundantly clear why he does that. You know, it is an act of cowardice. He cannot face his fears. Uh, and it, it, I mean, and as a matter of sort of narrative setup, it's uh, it, the point is that it's the idea of facing Penny, Pennywise is so scary to Stan that he can't even, you know, he would rather kill himself than, than, than go face it. That's how terrifying it is. And, you know, initially that's how the film sets this up. But at the end, you get this this suicide note. And the best sense I could make of it is that they were trying to undercut some sort of downplaying suicide message. You know, uh, uh, obviously suicide is a delicate topic. Um, uh, shows like 13 Reasons Why have sort of got a lot of controversy and a lot of blowback and flack for not doing dealing with this very artfully and hand gracefully. And I assume the filmmakers wanted to sort of avoid uh, that kind of uh, effect where it echoes and, and you know, possibly encourages more suicide or something like that. But for me, it had the exact opposite effect. Uh, you know, it, 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 yeah, it cast this idea of suicide as somehow a noble gesture, some kind of weird self-sacrifice so his friends could actually fight stronger, which, I mean, to me, makes no absolute sense at all. If anything, it's going to terrify them all the more, you know, that one of them is already dead and they, they you know, that they, they're that much closer to being alone. Uh, uh, the, the rationale doesn't make sense. Um, and so, it, so his internal monologue doesn't make sense. That the, the suicide quote, quote, suicide note that he writes doesn't make sense. And narratively and thematically and emotionally, it doesn't make sense. So I, I thought that was one of the clear mistakes the film made. I agree with that, and I think that uh, it almost undercut this idea that facing one's fears is an ongoing process. It seems to be that that's what I mean. This is why the film's to my mind is incoherent because it's not able to carry any of its themes forward um, all the way till their logical conclusion. I mean, I, I said this in, in my discussion of the childhood versus adulthood. I said this in the discussion of the, uh, the facing one's fears. 
um, as as a central theme. I I even talked about. I I mean, we can even talk about how this movie runs cross purposes as it relates to bullying. I made that point earlier. So I, you know, for that reason, it chapter two seems thematically incoherent. Um, I I hate to sort of <laughs> prove me wrong. I hate to say that, but prove me wrong, please. <laughs> Well, one of the things which uh, the, the idea is that no, there's, there's changed a cycle. my mind. That was the uh, dumb quote from the dumb right way. Change my mind. All right. Um, so thematically, the whole again, there's supposed to be this every 27 year cycle, right? That, that it comes back. And and when the 27th anniversary of the book came around, all sorts of people were saying, "Oh, is King gonna write a sequel?" And I I really want him to. He opted not to, and he 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 spoke to it. And in short, he, you know, he he. He, he just couldn't come up with a story and didn't want to force it out there, which I can respect. I'd rather I'd rather not have one than have one that felt artificial and forced. Um, but at the same time, I think the book does end much more on a note uh, of, you know, the idea that Pennywise isn't really gone, uh, uh, that he is a perennial force. And this is touched on throughout the greater Stephen King universe. You know, again, there's 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 several books that interlace and overlap with this. Most notably, the Dark Tower series. Uh, Shara, you mentioned Matur and the Turtle earlier. Um, uh, and so, so there there is sort of room in the in the broader universe, in the literary universe, for the for for these these sort of forces of evil to come uh, to 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 have their eternal recurrence, if you will. Um, but the, the filmmakers decided, I guess, not to, to, to even hint at something along those lines. And this is where I'll bring up that the books don't matter when we're reviewing the movie, but. Right. I mean, I, I'm using, I'm using them as a point of contrast and context sure. more than, uh, than except, saying that they don't save the movie. Except. In Wait, are you going to argue the books, books matter? <laughs> uh, well, I, I'm going to argue that the movie isn't actually complete. Um, we have a director's cut that has, uh, definitely some, there's chunks missing from both of these films. Uh, it's very obvious if you watch it that there are chunks missing. But on top of that, uh, we have a, an interview with the director himself that says he's going to have a super cut coming out. That is the director's cut plus other stuff. Uh, that isn't even recorded yet. He's going to be adding stuff to it. So there's going to be a supercut version of these films all put together. They already have four hours worth of information that will be added to it. So it's incomplete. And I understand we're reviewing this film, but I will say this. Um, I will not be surprised if the more supernatural elements that are interlinked within Stephen King's universe that interlinks all of the Stephen King universe, which is why the Castle Rock show is so fucking interesting um when you show the interlinked stephen king universe um it makes it make sense and i hate to be that person who says it but if you're a stephen king nerd some of this stuff might make more sense if you knew that source material and in a way that's annoying right like it's like oh you need to be a part of our club to understand this joke or to understand this thing but it's there, and it's and, and I mean it's interlaced throughout the whole thing. Did you notice the turtles? Did you notice the turtles throughout the film? I didn't, but I wasn't looking for turtles because I didn't exactly. know that and you wouldn't a look for turtle turtles god either. spit out the uh, the right. demon that's haunting dairy. Like so there's like these weird Easter eggs that are like what the fuck to to anybody who hasn't read the book. But if you watch the movie, 
it definitely hints at stuff from the source material. Like, it, it, okay, for, for instance, Bill is carrying a Lego turtle when he goes down to the basement and it breaks. These are little elements of like, haha, he hoo 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 he. And I know that that could be annoying to somebody who wouldn't know the source material, but for this particular situation, I feel like the source material has to come into play because of the cameo. And I will use the cameo as the reason to point it out, right? So Stephen King's in the shop when Bill goes to get his bike back. And Stephen King is roasting himself. He knows his ending sucks. <laughs> he knows his ending right. sucks. But so that it's doesn't... Like, it's, it's definitely hinting at the source material the whole time. Sure, and... it definitely is. But I, you know, we're, we're, I am a film critic uh, reviewing this movie. And this is the the coherent this is the artistic work that i am uh reviewing and as such i am asking for these filmmakers to just make a fucking movie and that they have to have a coherent storyline that goes from point a to point b and i don't think that that's too much to ask um i mean other i feel they did that i feel that they did that i felt like so my my daughter has never read the book you've read the book my daughter's never read the books, and my daughter okay. has never seen the miniseries, and she fucking loved this, and she got a lot of the themes. So I, I, I have a side person that I was, I was like, so what do you, what do you, what do you, what do you, <laughs> and I, I, and then I annoyed her with a million bits of information about it afterwards, and she probably hates me now, but <laughs> so, so let, 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 you. Let me... yeah. You yeah. seem to be in the middle between us. Let's see what you have to say. Yeah, I mean, l- let me take. Uh, uh, I- I'm I'm not insensitive to your concerns about about coherence, um, uh, thematic coherence, but in, in, for fear of stating the obvious, the 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 theme about Pennywise isn't fear of clowns per se or spiders per se. It's fear of death, right? I mean, uh, Pennywise is a harbinger of death. Uh, you know, uh, there's no realistic sense in which we're going to get killed by a clown or a spider or a demon, but death will come for us all. So to my mind, one of the scariest and best scenes in this film is the one that they actually seem to like so much that they excerpt it for like a, 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 tra- a preview all unto itself. The scene in which Bev goes back to her father's house and meets the old woman who is there um, uh, because the the what you see there is death of a different sort. Right. It's not violent death it's the slow encroachment of time that will slowly wither away all of us and you get these hints of like of sundowning and 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 where her sort of mental state seems to be disappearing uh uh and and just this this sort of flash forward that in a certain sense that woman there is bev that she is beverly at some point in the future even if she can avoid being killed by pennywise even if she can manage to not die a violent death that's the future she has to look forward to uh, uh, and, and again, of course, that line, no one who dies in dairy ever really dies, right? I mean, that's some genuinely scary shit. So and, and, and with regard to your concern, Jim, uh, about, you know, the idea of whether or not we have a happy ending here, whether or not we escape it, again, in a certain superficial sense, I agree that we do. But I think because the movie is well-seated with these other things, there is a clear recognition from the film, uh, even if it's not evident at the end of the film, that death has not been overcome. Uh, that death still waits for all of us. That, that that old age and incapacity, and that the evils that leak that lurk beneath the surface of small town America, 
have not gone away. We are, even though we may have made progress in some respects, we are still a bigoted and homophobic culture. And people still die because they are, uh, for, for no other reason than the fact that they are gay in this society. Um, and, and as much as we like to pat ourselves on the back and think that we've got gay marriage and things are better now, that we're no longer racist, yada, yada, that is still there. Uh, and we have not escaped that darkness. So uh, I, I don't think, feel it's as incoherent as you seem to be suggesting, because thematically, the, uh, 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 even though even if Pennywise is defeated, all those broader evils are still there. I don't see that in the final code of the movie. Um, I think you're right, clearly, but I don't think that's in the final moments of the movie where they're essentially summing up what happens to... And then at the end of the movie, this is what happened to Bev. She and Ben went off and lived on a boat for a while. And, you know, Mike finally gets out of the town, which is the one thing that he wasn't able to do while Pennywise, the specter of Pennywise, still hung over Derry. Um, it seems as though Bill is able to write about... Bill is able to write about his uh, his experiences with his friends, and he says that he finally has an ending in mind. Um, you know, we don't get too much out of Richie uh, when it, at the end of his, like, he doesn't get a coda the way some of the other ones he do. Admits he admits his love for a man and for, understands right. his sexuality, which is a huge thing for the gay community. We get it when, when you admit your sexuality to yourself it's a big deal sure. and when you accept it so i, I know mean, it's not like whoa they're on a boat and going to like you know be I mean, bathing I, suits naked together but it's kind of a big deal i agree that that's a big deal but it doesn't that just doesn't the fact that they all get a happy coda kind of undercut the the specter of death that always hangs around they are very much not happy though they've been through some shit and okay. they're going to try to deal with stuff. But here's the fun fact. In the film and in the book, Bev knows how they die. She sees them die. She knows the future. She knows what's going to happen. They Everyone about, dies. They like, talk about how she's able to change that future, though. She can change it, and but they it, don't, it doesn't matter. They never she's actually re revisit that. She's going to be that. able to see stuff. She has the eyes now. And, and it's, never and we all that. are going to die. Like, no amount of defeating Pennywise makes it to where you're immortal. So that is still always looming over you. And that's why there's this weird ambiance near the end. Even though it's like, oh, this is a happy end. You still feel like this energy and this, and this musical score that shows that, like, it's not all... Like peaches and roses and let the sun shine. Let yeah, the sun shine. shine and they, it's not just like the angel in the morning. No, they they didn't use either of those songs for the final score. No. But I still don't. I I never I never got that. I got that this was a happy ending. That's a really creepy happy ending for me. I, I, I really hope that the supercut that Shara mentions does follow the structure of the book. Um, I'm not sure if you could make that work editorially. I'm not sure if it would actually connect, um, but I would still, even if it is a little rough, even if it feels a little jumbled, I would love to see a version of these films, albeit if it would probably be over five hours long, uh, that, that, that jumps back and forth in the way that the novel does. Um, uh, I, and I'm curious if, if they did do that, 
how the ending uh, uh, would be different. Um, I, I I think I'm, I'm inclined to agree a little bit more with Jim that I, I, I as I already said I, I was dissatisfied with the ending both with how Pennywise was handled and the suicide note and, and some of the other sort of coda wrap up stuff. I agree with the suicide that, note part. That was weird and uh, whatever. <laughs> I don't understand that element. But I think that uh, the I mean. I, Maybe it's because I'm a lifelong King fan. I think you have to sort of get yourself into a mind state where you enjoy the journey more than the destination. Even if you, uh, if, the th if the ending does let you down, you still don't really let that spoil your enjoyment of the story because the story is still awesome. Anything else you guys want to say about this movie? Uh, I think it, it, it told you the end was going to suck anyway. So <laughs> you should have just known it considering it was laced throughout the whole entirety of it. <laughs> I was um, expecting the worst ending ever, to be honest. And maybe that was part you of it. Got it. <laughs> you know, no, I didn't though. Like here's the thing, like it's kind of like a guy saying like he has the smallest penis ever, and he just is saying that so that you're okay with what what's happening before you. Uh <laughs> Like, I feel like that's what the movie did. It's like, the ending sucks, the ending sucks, the ending sucks, the ending sucks. And then the ending got there, and I was like, eh, it's, it's fine. It'll do. <laughs> so um, so I, I, I say one of the things which did, uh, I felt was uh, in some ways unfair of the film, but also you know, was noticeable to me, so I can't pretend like I didn't notice it. I felt that the, the main cast was decidedly unbalanced. And that unbalance almost perfectly mirrored the level of fame that the main actors had. I felt that Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, and especially Bill Hader were all really solid in their parts. I mean, uh, uh, Hader's getting a lot of praise, and I think he, as he, he totally deserves it. He's, he steals a scene in this. Uh, but the, the other half, Mike, Ben, and Eddie, uh, played by Isaiah, Mustafa, Jay Ryan, and James Ransom, yeah, all were kind of letdowns. Uh, and, you know, I've been trying to check myself. Is that just because I don't know who these actors are? They've got three names for three parts and then three unknown for me actors. I have three no parts. idea, but I can tell you this. Uh, Kylie and I loved Eddie. We loved Eddie. Eddie is is everything to us. Maybe we like people that are hypochondriacs. I don't fucking know, but we loved Eddie. And, uh, like, every line he delivered, I... I I found my daughter and I like holding hands like ah, great. Like he's so, um, I don't know. Maybe he's just relatable in a lot of ways of how we overanalyze things. And we're just like, ah, oh, I'm going to fucking be with you people. Aren't I? Oh shit. And it's just like, I don't know. He's, I don't know who the actor is, but he was uh, fantastic. And James Ransom is his name. Um, and, and uh, since you mentioned it, I'll, uh, you mentioned it earlier. I'll go back to the scene. I, the, the, the scene at the end where he says, I fucked your mother. I thought that was totally off. And, oh, my God. That was like the best part of the movie for me. <laughs> I, humor at that moment was absolutely not the thing that was called for. That is a tragic moment. And while it fit the character in a certain way, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it, it was a character break, but just in terms of, of, of feeling and tone and emotion, um, I wanted that to be a heavier sequence. So I know that in uh, the the book, uh, the the running gag was that Richie always called him Eds, and he hated being called Eds. And the ending is that Richie, you know, calls him Eds, and he's like, you know, I don't like it when you call me that. And uh, then Eddie strokes his cheek, and they have a moment, and it's like 
kind of romantic and whatever. Um, but the running gag of the book was don't call me Eds. They didn't put that throughout any part of the film where, where he was uh, annoyed with being called Eds. So it had to have been a joke. It had to have been an inside joke for them that was a running gag. And for them, it was fucking each other's moms. That was their running gag throughout the film. So uh, that's the running gag that they decided to go with. For it, it made sense considering there was a running gag that needed to be said. Because Eddie knew that Richie could not go on unless there was a joke made, a running gag made for his death. He knew that he needed to help this person he loved deal with the inevitable and that was how he decided to give this like love token in that way and so it made so much fucking sense to me i'm sure most people would be like who the fuck says that when they're gonna die but it made sense to me considering the running gag of the book and then the running gag of the movie they decided to have yeah, it's not that it doesn't make sense. I, I I agree, it makes sense. What I what I uh, the objection I have is that tonally and emotionally, I felt it undercut the power of. I mean, you know, this is a scene when when your close friend is dying. It should be tragic. It should be highlighted, even though even if it is realistic that people do have deathbeds deathbed humor sometime. Um, it's it's not. It, it, it was whiplash. It took me out of the scene in a way I didn't want to be taken out of the scene. Oh, it did the opposite for me. Yeah, for me, that sequence was, it was fine. I th- I didn't have much trouble with, uh, with Eddie saying I fucked your mother, but uh, I certainly see where you two are coming from. Hey, so let's move on to uh, final thoughts. Um, give our, our summations of it and then uh, score this movie. What do you think, Garrett? Well, I think when you consider the fact that you're trying to adapt an 1,100-page book, which is a daunting task, I mean, I, I challenge anyone to go out there and find successful adaptations of films from books that are that long. Um, uh, it, it's something that is a remarkable challenge. And, and Stephen King obviously has sort of mixed success at the box office. Some of his films are absolutely fantastic. Some of them are absolute crap. Most of them are somewhere in between. It doesn't surprise me too much that this one lands somewhere in the in-between uh, section. Uh, uh, the film is better than the average Stephen King film, I would say, and better than it has any right to be. Uh, it, I think it aspires for the right things and succeeds in many of the particular sort of uh, uh, mechanical parts of, of a good horror film, several good performances, lots of good effects, both special and practical, and it's at least aiming for the right emotional uh, uh, themes even if it, it doesn't necessarily succeed at all of those uh, lofty aspirations. Uh, I feel the the, the the film is good and solid. Okay, On a scale of, of five, I would give it a, a three out of five. I was really excited to see a film adaptation of King's work where some of the homosexual elements were put in, but also not the negative ones. Um, we have in The Stand, we have a, a character called The Kid who rapes Trash Can Man. We have even in It, uh, we have uh, the main bad guy, Henry, uh, getting um, some love from his dear friend Patrick who I think ends up giving him his knife underneath the bed later on in the film but in the book they have an interaction of a hand job and also of a blow job and it's not necessarily the most positive of interactions so King has this uh, history of 
depicting homosexuals as psychopaths or as people who are uh, using their sexuality as power trips or as ways to uh, destroy relationships. And um, I like that this film used the undertones of those things and uh, put a positive like turn of events into it. And it, it does kind of vindicate King in a lot of circles. And it also is more honest to the source material in, in a positive way. So kudos to the film for doing that. Um, but you know, there's obviously the problems. There, there are plenty of problems. With this film, I, I did not necessarily think it was the greatest Pennywise ever. Uh, we can argue about which the Joker is better, which Pennywise is better. I love Bill Skarsgård. I love that he's able to move his eyes in weird ways and move his face and contortion his face in weird ways. I, I found out. The reason why he was able to move his body in these ways that looked almost like CGI was happening was because he was a troll to his younger siblings when he was a kid. And he would move his face and his body to freak out the children in his life. And because of that, he was really good at being a creepy clown in this film. You know, kudos to him for using the stuff that he is capable of. Kudos to him for uh, doing most of the stunts that he could like he tried to do every stunt he could um and kudos to the film for trying to go back to practical effects i i love that they decided to give some hints to the thing uh with the head and the spider legs that come out and like <laughs> are you fucking kidding me <laughs> the the I, I don't know the whole line i suck at lines from movies because i'm not an actor but it was totally a reference to the thing I love that they gave references to the Lost Boys and they had the, uh, you know, super secret clubhouse that was built and it felt just um, like you found a, a home with your friends. And it, it kind of reminded me a little bit of Hook. <laughs> uh, it was kind of a, a fun, nostalgic Hook moment. Um, and then I also really liked when the film decided to go into their deepest, darkest fears. It, it was that um, Bill and Ted's excellent adventures, like their, but their bogus journeys when they went to hell and they went through um, different doors of versions of their past that were really scary or possible futures that were really scary. And they had to work through. There was a lot of nineties and eighties elements to this film that weren't like, trying to be nostalgic so that you could feel like you're young again, but more so nostalgic, like, hey, remember practical effects? Hey, remember when we, uh, like, actually delved into what we're actually afraid of in these, like, creative funny ways or creative fucked up ways? So, um, I don't know. It, it, it hit a lot of those beautiful notes for me. Still not perfect, though, and so I give it a 3.5 definitely recommend watching this. Uh, I definitely recommend watching the completion of one and two together because I did not like one hardly at all. And then adding two to it made me care for it more. And I wish it had the same beat of the book and the miniseries of back and forth in time. I think it adds to the right beat of the film. So uh, I give it a 3.5 or 3.5 out of five. 
Yeah, so I'm going to be a little bit lower <laughs> um, as uh, as yeah, Garrett is very shocked by that. Um, so this didn't work for me on almost any level um, for me. The uh, let's start with the thematic uh, parts about this. And, and as I was sort of writing the the questions to ask and I knew I was hosting this uh this session of the podcast i was like i how am i gonna squeeze blood from this fucking stone and uh that's essentially what the questions were was me sort of racking my brain for the things about this that i thought were interesting but even the things that i think were interesting didn't weren't cohesive um i've noted that in each of the themes that we were discussing how it seems to be uh, at odds with itself as it relates to bullying. It seems to be at odds with, with itself um, as it relates to facing one's fears. And it, it seems to be at odds with itself in its uh, depiction of childhood and adulthood. Um, I don't think any of those themes are united under a cohesive vision in the pro product that we have. Now, it may very well be that another film, another artistic work about it may be made by the same creators. Uh, we will be much better and will have uh, cohesive elements that uh, thematically connect. But my job right now is to tell you whether or not to go see IT Chapter 2, and I cannot say that you should. Um, let's also talk about some of the technical elements, which is something we didn't necessarily get into in the, uh, the lion's share of the podcast. But... Uh, for me, many of the scares did not work. And the reason for that is they were all of the same variety. Uh, they were jump scares or they were grisly images running at the camera. This is true in both films. This is true in It Chapter 1 as well as It Chapter 2. Grisly images running at the camera or the camera pans down to reveal something and then... The music happens, and it's it's supposed to to make you jump. Um, what I know the filmmakers were going for, and what I believe the source material was going for, was um, relating the individual scare moments to the individual characters' lived experience. That is to say, that these that because. Uh, Eddie is a hypochondriac having vomit spewed at him is the thing that scares him the most. And so when that moment comes, I hoped that I would have identified enough with Eddie so that I feel just as repulsed as he does when vomit comes uh, spewing at his face, which sidebar, why the heck? hell is angel in the morning playing while that ha that is happening i don't necessarily understand that musical choice and it doesn't thematically relate with anything else but i love that song so i'm happy to hear it on the soundtrack by gods the point is is that i would have hoped that i would have identified enough with eddie so that when that vomit comes i will feel the same type of fear that he does and the problem with this movie is because it's got so many characters, because it's so long, because it's so sprawling, I was never able to drill down into an individual character's individual experience and feel the fear that that, that character felt in that moment. And for that reason, many of these scares didn't work for me on a technical level, nor did they work for me on a character level. As a result, this film did not work at all 
all for me, and I have to give it one and a half stars. That said, my uh, obvious, uh, <laughs> you can see Shayra's reaction to that, uh, that uh, she obviously disagrees. So you are, you are what we, at Deadly Analysis Podcast, what we do more than anything else is cultivate a discerning listenership and viewership. And as a result of that, you, my lovely and discerning uh, listeners, will be able to decide based upon uh, your own artistic choices or your own artistic sensibilities whom you align most with, Garrett, Shara. Or, or me. Um, so that'll do it for today's podcast. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. Um, check us out on social media. Check us out on uh, at Deadly Analysis Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all of those places. You can also check out our individual Twitter accounts where we occasionally tweet uh fantastic horror memes uh and and movie reviews um give us a be sure to like share and subscribe this video and enjoy uh next week's uh podcast where we review the classic the roman polanski classic uh rosemary's baby um that uh, that will be sure to churn out quite a few discussions uh especially as they relate to the film itself and maybe even the context behind the film so looking forward to that uh next week uh have a good night thank you <laughs>